Ladies and gentlemen, hello. My name is Will Tarashuk. I am the founder of Ambiguous Podcast Solutions, and you are listening to the Ambiguous Podcast Solution. Now, how this show works is that uh, myself, Jared Laverne, uh, Nash Moore or Luke Moore will be the four hosts in which we talk to podcasters to learn about their podcast, their story, and what their goals are moving forward. So this is a brand new series. And actually, my first guest that I am ever talking to, and I'm very excited, is Danny Levin from the Mosaic Podcast. A little bit of background on Danny. He walked away from the opportunity to run a multi-billion dollar company to hitchhike around the world to find happiness and inner peace. He studied for five years in a seminary and left one day before being ordained and lived as a monk in a monastery for an additional 10 years. He led a growth of Hay House uh, from $3 million a year in sales to $100 million a year in sales. He considers himself to be a rare blend of businessman and mystic who would love to share the gift of connection and the power of listening with all of you, the audience. So, Danny... It is my absolute pleasure to meet you. And, and really, it was the um, the rare blend of businessman and mystic. Now, I do not consider myself necessarily a mystic. I consider myself a wannabe mystic. I do believe in the whole like <laughs> idea of yoga, meditation, and the spirit. So I am very much looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for being here on the Ambiguous Podcast Solution. I'll be here. And just to be clear, you and I consider myself a mystic either that's what people have described me as so it's not so much that i see myself as a rare blend of businessman and mystic as much as that's what people see me as because i i approach business so much differently than the way most people approach business i look for opportunities where people aren't seeing something that is right in front of their eyes mm-hmm. and and so often what happens in business is we is we gather together with like-minded people and we gather together with people who think like us. And we think that the more people that think like us, the greater our potential is to spread that message. And that's beautiful. It's true. But innovation doesn't really happen that way. And that's what I found. And when I was called into a company to lead a, co- to lead a conference on innovation, I walked into a, a you know, skyscraper in New York and I went up to the 48th floor and as soon as the elevators opened, you could feel the feeling of luxury that was in every part of what they did. Mm-hmm. And I walked in in a t-shirt and jeans. Love it. I love and it. I came, I, I came into the room and the people in the room were wearing, you know, their three pieces of suits and their Armani al- and, uh, pants suits and outfits and dresses. And uh, I came in the room and they said, can I help? Can they say, can we help you? We're about to start a meeting here. I said, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I, I guess you can. They said, are you here to get the trash? I said, I guess, I, I guess honestly I am. <laughs> and they pointed me to the trash can. I said, but I don't think that's where the trash is. And they said, sir, we're, we're about to start a meeting. We're not into anybody sort of giving us sort of, you know, philosoph- philosophical conversations. I said, okay. I said, you hired me to lead a conference on innovation. I can leave right now if you'd like, but let me ask you right now, how do you think you're doing so far? And they said, whoops. <laughs> and I said, you expected me to look like you. You expected me to tell you things you already know. That's not innovation. 
Right. They expected the whole the, the business clean cut, you know, cut and dry suit businessman um, like you see in the movies. And then when, yeah. when you walked in, it must have been a complete mind blow. And that is that is honestly like just doing this, doing some research on listening to your podcast and going to your website. That's what I like most. And I'm going to take this quote from your website. It says, if you would spend 10 minutes with someone you do not know and let them tell you who they are, their life would change. And if all of us did that and your life would change and your life would change. And if all of us did that, the world would change. Yeah. Yeah. And and you know where I learned that from? I learned that from a homeless man on the street corners of San Diego. I was walking downtown and I'm a little bit of an empath. So I feel people a lot. Right. And when I was walking down the street, I was just feeling the pain of people. Like I felt this woman walk by me and and she must've had something wrong with her heart because my heart started to explode as she walked by and it really hurt. And 10 seconds after she passed me, it it was gone. And then I, I, like two minutes later, a man was on a, was walking with a cane with all of his energy on a cane. And my knees buckled out from under me. The pain was so vast in his legs that I literally fell down to the ground. And 25 seconds later, when he had managed to get himself past me, the pain was gone. And I realized, holy Toledo, I'm feeling these pieces in me. I'm feeling these people's pain in my body. I'm, I don't want this. I don't, how do I get away from this? So I walked to where the sidewalk meets the building. And I don't even know what that's called, but it's the, it's the edge of the sidewalk. And sitting in that place was a homeless man by the name of Corey. And he said, no, no, this is my spot. You can't come here. <laughs> and I said, I, I said I'm sorry. I, I don't want to take anything from you. I just need, I said, as painful as your life is right now, and I know it's painful, you're, you're, you're a sigh of relief for me from what I'm, what I'm experiencing walking on the streets here. And, and he said, but I, here, I make money here. And if you're here, I won't make money. I said, how much money do you make in the, in, well, you make in the next half an hour? And he said, $5. I make $10 an hour, $5 every half an hour. So I put my hand in my wallet and I gave him $50. And I said, okay, this will cover the next half an hour. Let me just sit with you. I'm interested in knowing who you are. And he said, you're strange. Okay, you can sit down. I said, let's keep the hat out. You'll make more than that too. And it took him a little while, Will, to open up to me. Right. But when he did, I finally asked him, Corey, if you could say anything to the people that are walking past you, you see thousands of people walking past you every day. What would you say to them? What would you ask them? And he said, Danny, if people would only spend 10 minutes with a stranger and just ask them how they're doing, they'd have no idea how much that would affect them and how much that would change the life of a stranger. And I said, Corey, out of all the things that you could ask for, I mean, that's so beautiful, but out of all the things you could ask for, you're homeless. You could ask, you could have asked for shelter. You could have asked for meals. You could have asked for a job. You could have asked for anything. Why do you ask for that? And he said, Danny, while you've been sitting with me, you're a storyteller and you've told me a lot of stories. Let me tell you a story. I said, I would love that. And he told me the story of how he hates being homeless, how he's ashamed and embarrassed to be so. But what he hates even more than his own shame and his own despair is the way people treat him. They don't treat him like a person. They don't even treat him like an animal. Right. They treat him like a thing. And people will walk by and kick him or spit on him or punch him or, or beat him up. And he said he went to sleep one, one time. He was sleeping on his box and a man stood there and urinated on him. And he thought, God, what is going on? I, I feel embarrassed and ashamed to be in this world and people hate me. And he said, Danny, you don't know this, but the street right behind us is a, is a dark street. Nobody goes on it. 
There's nothing there for anybody to see. And in the evening, it's pitch black. Nobody walks it. And I decided that night I was going to go to that street and I was going to take my life. About two minutes after I had that thought, a man in a three-piece suit came down, came up next to me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, how are you, brother? And I looked at him and I said, this is not a good time, sir. Just keep walking. You don't want to know. Keep walking. This is not a good time. Just keep walking. You, you want nothing to do with me. And the man said, I'm sorry, sir but I'm going to sit here with you and I do want something there. When I ask you how you're doing, I mean it. And Corey said, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was his three piece suit and, and the fact that he was important in my eyes and the fact that I was so unimportant in my own, but he put his arm around me and I started crying into his shoulder, big tears, crocodile tears. And then I started talking to him and telling him all the things that I hated about life and all the things that were troubling me and all the pains and all the sorrows that I had. And he just sat there and held me. He didn't try and fix me. He didn't try and help me. He didn't try and suggest anything to me. He didn't try and give me a job. He didn't try and do anything. He just stayed there and loved me. Wow. Danny, wow. Do, he said, Danny, do you know that man saved my life that day? Because I realized I can't kill myself now. Somebody important actually spent 10 minutes with me and made me feel important. And I wish I could have found that man again. I wish I could have told him that that day he saved my life. He doesn't know that. Well, you know, there's something called the butterfly effect. The story that Corey told me had a massive impact on me. And I decided in every talk that I gave, in every conference room that I went to, in every conference that I was a part of, in every podcast, on every TV show, on every radio show, I was going to tell Corey's story. His story has been told now to millions and millions of people. And I always ask the same thing that I'm going to ask people in your audience right now. What would happen if you would take 10 minutes out of the course of your life and just go up to someone you don't know and just ask them how they're doing and just listen to them and just love them and just accept them and just acknowledge what they're saying and validate what they're saying. What would that do for you and for the person you do that for? 10 minutes out of the course of a lifetime is not that much to ask. No, not at all. We've been talking for almost 10 minutes right now. And let me tell you, it's, it's 100% true. It's 100% true. I, I'm feeling it. Um, so I'm, I'm definitely feeling in the groove right now. But you did, you did mention that you were actually a businessman. So what is your business? And how did you get to the opportunity to even run a multi-billion dollar company. And then from there, how, how, did, how did you walk away? Why did you walk away? Was it easy to walk away? Hmm. So I, I, I need to know, like how, one, one, like what is your business and how did you get that to opportunity to run a multi-billion dollar company? So my business has changed a thousand times in the course of this lifetime, mm -hmm. but it's also, it's all, it's never really changed. My business is I help people have what they want. And it's, you, it sounds like a, it sounds like an Alice in Wonderland dream, but it's so much, e it's so easy to have what you want if you know how to do it. And what happened for me is I wrote a book called The Mosaic, and that book is based on the story of my, of my life, roughly based. I, it's a fabulized version of my story. And in that story, I tell the, the story of Mo, a boy who loses his parents two years apart on the same day. And in losing his parents two years apart on the same day, he is thrown into a whole different world 
Well, that was my story. I was brought up in a lower middle class family, but my mother's sister had married a very, a world renowned man who ran businesses all around, all around the world. It was a household name. And when my parents passed away, my aunt and uncle moved me into their house and I became part of their family. And it was in the days, this was 50 years ago, Will. Mm-hmm. Thank God we've grown in the 50 years that we've been around. But in those 50, 50 years ago, a man didn't give his business, a multi-billion dollar business to his daughter, even though his daughters were far more capable of doing it. At least one of them, the two of them were, than I was. But because I was a guy, he said, I'm going to watch you for the next month and a half. And I'm going to see if you have what it takes, because we didn't really know each other that well. I lived on the East Coast. They lived in the Midwest. And when I, I looked at it, I said, I, he looked at me. He said, a month and a half into it, he said, I'm going to take you out to lunch today. And he took me out to lunch, and he said, I'm going to change your life right here in this one moment. I've been watching you, and I like what I see. You're going to take some work. But I like what I see. And I'm going to offer you to start pushing a broom and to work your way from the, from pushing a broom to as far as you can work your way up the chain. But I will mentor you along the way. So wherever your natural energy stops, I will mentor you to take you past that because in 15 years, I want you to be taking over my seat because I want to retire, but I want to semi-retire. I still want to be involved, but I want you running the day-to-day of it. He said, what do you think? And I looked at him and I said, you know something, that is just the most generous, kindest offer you could ever imagine. But I'm a kid. I'm only 15 years old. All right, all right, pause for a second. So he offered you a multi-billion dollar company at 15 years old? He offered me to start pushing a broom. Gotcha. And then move up to from 50. He was going to... He was going to train me for those for 15 more years and mentor me and get me to the place where he sat by the time I was 30 years old. Gotcha. And you said, and I said to him, you know, something, you're such a wise man. And I can't tell you how touched I am by your offer, but I'm a kid. I want to know what I'm walking into. So it took you a month and a half to see if I was the person you wanted you thought I, you needed me to be. I'd like to take a year and watch you because I, I don't, I'm not as smart as you are. I'd like to take a year and watch you and see how you live your life and see if what you're offering me is what I want. And he said, okay, that's strange, but you know that 99% of the people would have said, I wait until tomorrow. That's right now. I said, just our luck that I'm the point. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> say, oh, until you can't stop anymore and say one. As much as that pisses me off and as much as that irritates me and as much as I feel like you're crazy, that's what I like about you also. That's why I'm making you the offer. So a year later, he invited me out to lunch again. And that's a whole nother story, but we walked away from each other and we it wasn't ever that I was running a billion-dollar company, but that it was all in my hands if I wanted it. Gotcha. And I, and I said, that's not – I don't see in this life the life that I want because it isn't the heaven that I'm looking for. Gotcha. So you're looking for more of the um, 
the uh the, the self goals you know focusing more on what you want what you need as opposed to what others think you want or need yeah i i, w- I was looking for a life where people didn't like me my would like my kids because of their money or wasn't allowed to do anything to make any changes something that wasn't broken in his eyes and it would have never been mine right so we can we can try our best to succeed at being someone else, but we'll never be fulfilled that way. Right. And so what I, what I learned in that moment is in your old kid is I would rather fail miserably and be myself than succeed trying to be somebody else. hundred percent. And what I, what, what my business now is, is I help people find themselves against what I see is a world full of people trying to be somebody else. It, it takes, it takes a lot to truly find yourself. It takes a very long time. And I can speak from my own personal experience, you know, like me personally, I'm 25 years old as of recording this. And I remember in high school, like everyone said I was the goofy kid. I was like like this, that, that kid, I had that moniker of being goofy. And I remember just hating it. I was like, I don't want to be goofy. I want to be this. I want to be that. I don't want to be this. And the harder I tried to be someone else, the more, it dawned on me as like, I just have to be myself. So the idea of like finding yourself, it takes a long time for some people to actually find it. But even t- I sit here today, it's like, I'm very comfortable with myself. And the point where my friends go, it's actually intimidating how comfortable I am with myself. Like Nash will tell me all the time, like the one thing I respect the most about you is that no matter what I say to you, no matter what insult I'll say to you, it won't put you down. It won't bring you down. You just brush it right off like it's nothing. And I honestly don't know how I got there. But I got there. So, Danny, was something that helped you get there was the seminary and being a monk for 10 years. So how do you go from like business to almost a complete 180 to being in a seminary and just a day before or being ordained, you pretty much walk away from that and go be a monk for 10 years. So tell me about the seminary. What was that like? Um, Everything that I've done in my life, Will, has been... I've been so thankful for it. It's been so wonderful. I was, when I was hitchhiking along the road, my goal was to make it to India because I had wanted to go and learn with a spiritual teacher there. And along the way, I stopped in Israel to go. It was getting to be winter time, and I didn't really have a lot of good winter clothes. And so the two girls I was traveling with said to me, why don't we go to a kibbutz? And why don't we live on the kibbutz for a little while? And right as we were about to go, Israel moved its forces to the Syrian border and it looked like there was going to be a war. And the girl said, we're not going to go to Israel now. And I said, screw that. I mean, I've never been in a country at war. Why don't I see, I want to see what a country at war looks like. Oh God. And I went there and I, and that, you know, that's how innocent naive I was. Right. <laughs> and, I, and I flew into Israel and I got onto the, and I, I was up in, in Northern Israel, not far from the Syrian border far i was still probably 40 miles away but i was i was closer i could have gone south where i was further away but i was and i thought you know now i can really contribute because i'm here and the men have to go to war and I, i can help take care of the land and and i went there and i was i was so taken by the sense of community that i felt there and the sense that everybody can it turned out they didn't go to the war but i remember they told me i had never driven a track I had never driven here, but the 
the job that everybody wanted, but was doing the tractor. And so they said, have you ever driven a tractor? I said, sure, I have. Because I thought it was just like driving a car. Well, it's nothing like driving a car. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, was sitting, I was sitting on the tractor trying to go through gears. And the guy said, oh, you've never driven a tractor before, have you? I said, no, I haven't. I'm, and he show you, it's really easy. But I was sitting on the tractor, on the tractor, I heard, at that point in time, they didn't have any regions about how high a plane had to fly when it went through this when it went through the sound barrier. So I heard a sonic boom, and I just I literally stopped the tractor and scurried beneath it. And the people working with, what are you doing? I sounded like a bomb, <laughs> and they said, "No, idiot, that's a sonic." And so, like, I was like oh, pins and needles while I was there, but I stayed there nonsense and I was about to leave and I was looking at this rabbi that they said was a holy man up all night and wanted people to visit him between six and I thought before I go to India I'm going to go overland from from I was going to Israel to Turkey overland from Turkey India um, and I said before I'm a little scared so before I go I'd like to get this guy's blessing I don't to get his blessing and he threw me out of his office and I, I said, long story, but I said, this isn't the way I want this trip. Short, shorted story is, he said, if I would have told you, I, I sat there and I wouldn't leave. And he came back and I said, I'm not leaving. So you got to tell me what you're, what you're trying to tell me. And he said, well, I asked you how long you've been in Israel. You told me nine months. You say you've seen it north, south, east, and west. But I don't believe you've seen a thing. So if you want to go to India, You'll do the same thing. You'll go there. You'll go all over the country. You won't see a thing because you don't know how to see. If you want to learn how to see, come back tomorrow. I said, sir, I'm leaving on a plane tomorrow to get to Turkey. He said, that's why I threw you out. out. Hmm. And so as I was driving on the Shea route from, from Jerusalem to Tel Aviv, I'm thinking, well, I have no, nothing on my schedule except I have a non-refundable ticket and I didn't have much money at that time. And I said, I started to pray. I said, God, if you want me to stay in Israel and learn how to see, you're going to have to do something. I pulled up into the, into the airport. I got out. There was a long line security in Israel in those times. Imagine they were about to move, you know, have a go to war with Syria mm -hmm. a little bit later. And, and security there anyway is crazy. It's like it makes our security now look like like kindergarten. And I'm standing at the back of the line, and this voice goes, "You, hey you!" And I, I look around, and I'm, and I'm wondering who they're yelling at. And the voice comes right up to my face. He says, "You, I'm talking to you." And I said, "What did I do?" He said, "Just shut up and come with me." And I thought, "Oh great, now I'm in for it." And he pulled me up to the front of the line, and and. And people behind me or in front of me were like, what, what, what are you bringing that guy up here for? And the supervisor came out and said, um, what are you here for? And I said, well, um, I have a ticket to leave today. And I can tell you this whole story in four-part harmony that, you know, if something happened, then I'd, I'd, I'd like to stay, but my ticket's non-refundable. She said, um, come here. And she brought me into the back room. I said, what did I do? What's wrong? She said, I had a dream last night of this man, and she, and, and she described him, and he was the man I was sitting with the night before. And she said, I don't ever want to see that man again, but he told me if I see you, don't let me leave Israel. 
Hmm. So let me see your, let me see your ticket. And I showed her my ticket. I said, this is non-refundable, ma'am. I don't mean to cause any problems. She said, I can't refund a non-refundable ticket, but what I can do is I'm going to give you $400 a wallet. I'm, I'm going into my own cash. I'm giving this to you. I'm saying, give me your ticket, shut the hell up, and get out of here. <laughs> so I got my ticket refunded, and I took the shayrut back to the rabbi, and he couldn't believe that I'd come back. But what he taught me was how to see. And you don't think that's an important quality, and it sounds really mystical, the story, and it sounds spiritual, but in business, we don't know how to see. We look at things and we see them only the way we see them. Right. But when we learn how to see more than what we can see, there's so many opportunities that are right in front of our eyes that we never even know existed. So, so I guess, how do you define true sight then? Right, because there's, there's, there's before this experience and after this experience, like, assuming that you can now see, like what's what's the difference? Great question. Uh, let me give you a direct experience, okay? When I was at Hay House, I helped Hay House, which is the premier self-help publishing company in America. Now, it was a three million, they did $3 million a year when I came there. Mm-hmm. When I left, they did $100 million a year. That was 10, 10 years later. And what happened, here's a perfect example. The man who ran it um, and I became very close friends. We were like partners. We did everything together. And I said, if we're a self-help house, we should be publishing every self-help author that comes out. I mean, we should be the ones that publish the big names in self-help. And he said, Danny, that will never happen. The big publishing houses are giving them million-dollar advances, and we can't afford to do that. Our whole revenue is $3 million a year. And we have to pay and, and, and provide. I said, and I said to him, read, never is a big word. I mean, that's a long time. If I can find a way to get those people, would you be willing to allow me the time to do that? He said, are you kidding? Go for it. That's why you're here. I brought you here because I watched you try and do several things that would have been multi-million dollar ventures for the company you were with before, and they wouldn't let you do them. So you, you've got a total green light here. Do whatever you need to do. Well, within a very short period of time, what I did is I knew we weren't going to be able to get their next book. They were under contract to the publishers they were with. But I created something new in the industry that had never been created. I created these card decks that have become so popular now that they outsold their books. Their New York Times bestselling books, these card decks were selling 10 to 1 over them. So they were selling so many more of the card decks than they were selling of the books. And we gave the authors royalties on the card decks that were double or triple what they were making on the books with their publishers. And so these people came to me and they said, Danny, we didn't even do anything. You did all this for us. Why in the, and we're making 10 times the amount of money with you that we're making with our, with our publishers. Why wouldn't we have you publish our books? And I said, the easiest reason is because you have a million dollar advance there. But but we can do for you what they can do for you. We just have to have the rights to do it. So they went to the publishers and they said, we want to break our contract and we want to publish with these guys. And they didn't take us seriously because we were a $3 million publishing house at that point. Mm -hmm. Or or we we were growing from a $3 million publishing house. But right now... I just, I I haven't been there for a lot of years and I heard Penguin Books bought Hay House for a lot, a lot of money. 
And so uh, it, when you have the ability to see, you don't get limited by what people think is the only way to do stuff. Mm-hmm. You start to see new avenues and new ways and what's needed and what isn't there and what could you create that would make what you want to create all the more all the more special. And that's happened for me in numerous situations over and over again by just looking at what is there but nobody else sees. Does that make sense? In, in a way, it to me, it sounds like you're look, taking a step back from the situation and taking a look at the bigger picture and trying to think of what are they not thinking of, right? Like they have this very cut, cut and clear way of doing something. And I'm over here being the wild card <laughs> in almost everything. How can yeah. I just throw a monkey wrench and make them see something else? No, but it has nothing to do with making anybody see anything. It has to do with, look, let me, let me tell you another story because maybe, maybe I'm a storyteller and I apologize. If no, that's I love not it. I love it. Okay. I love it. I can listen okay. all night. Okay. I just wrote a book called The Mosaic. And what it is, it's a fabulized version of my life. And I thought it would take me about maybe eight weeks to write. Because I had been asked to write a book for, for the most anticipated hotel opening in 2015. They had asked me to write their story and create a book out of it. And so I went there and I said to them, well, what is your story? And they said, I don't think you understand. We don't have a story. We want you to create a story for us. I said, okay. And I had them send me their core values and they gave me their core values and I created characters out of their core values. And the reason people came to this hotel, which was in Hawaii, we're going to come to this property was because to fall in love because that's what people do in Hawaii. They re, they fall in love or we fall in love with each other. And it was on the beautiful island of Maui. So I wrote a love story based on characters that I had created from their core values. And so I had written that in about six weeks. So I thought my own story would take eight weeks to write. Mm-hmm. Three years later, I was literally pulling out my hair in frustration because I would be, I was writing this book and I would save what I wrote, which I really liked. And I would wake up in the morning and it wasn't there. And I knew I had saved it, but it wasn't saved. Or I would finish four chapters that I thought were incredible and the files became corrupted. One time I was really close to having the book done and my computer crashed and we were able to save everything but the book. Oh no. So I was like, just so frustrated. You can ask my wife, I would wake up at two o'clock in the morning and I would just start writing just because I had to get this out of me and I had to get it out. And finally I realized, hold it. This book is talking about the fact that nothing is as it seems. Well, I seem to be looking at things just the way they seem. What's really trying to happen here? What is it that I don't see that's happening here? And so what I did is I invited my characters and the characters were made up characters. They were based on characters that I had interacted with in my life, but they weren't real characters. I had created fabulized versions of them. Mm-hmm. And I said to them, you've got to come and show up in front of me. And I had them appear almost like, you know, like in the best way I can describe it is I had a Zoom call with them, but it wasn't a Zoom call, obviously, because they weren't real. Hmm. 
And, and I asked them, I asked them, why do you, why are you not letting this book be written? Every time that I write a chapter about one of you guys, you disrupt it, you disrupt it, or you lose it, or you corrupt it, or you, or, or you, or you make it not what I thought it was in the beginning. And each one of them, one by one, they said to me, Danny, what you're writing is not what we want to say. And I said, with all due respect, guys, you're my characters. I made you up. I brought life to you. I have a right to tell you what I want you to say. You can't tell me it's not what you want to say. And they said, you certainly have that right, Danny. But if you continue to exert that right, you'll be another five years and the book won't be done. If you listen to what we're trying to say, if you listen to what we want to say and write what we want to say, and you just have to listen in your heart, we'll tell you what we want to say. The book will be done in 30 days. Well, Will, that was the first time in my life, imagine characters that I had created, that I had given life to, stood up to me and said, once you gave us life, we became real. Mm-hmm. And once we became real, we have a voice. So, so you need to listen to us. So did you do all this through meditation? Like, was it a dream? Is this through I did all this prayer? through. I, I did all this through absolute frustration and endurance. <laughs> and I, and I, I literally, I wish I could say I sat and meditated and got the answers from above, or this was a channeled work. I was so friggin' frustrated that I just sat in frustration. And I said, type, just, I can't, I can't put up with it. Just type. Yeah. You obviously want me to do something that I don't know how to do. So do it. Yes. Let your mind, you let your mind take the wheel and the fingers do all the work. Yeah, it was just, yep. it was, it was, it wasn't even my mind. It was like, I, I just felt my heart speaking to me and just saying, and I got to tell you, Will, the voice that I have today was not the voice that I had then. The voice that I have today is a softer voice. The characters were not the characters that I hung out with. I always hung, hung out with only high vibrational people or people that had a certain resonance to them. But the characters in my book, the people that I went to to find the answers to heaven in my book were a homeless guy, a a street artist, a juice man, a road worker, a trash man, and a blind woman, and a gardener, common ordinary people. And what I realized in looking at them, again, in the same story over and over again in, in in another context, When I came up to them, I said, what in the hell am I sitting with these guys for? What are they going to show me about heaven? They're just common, ordinary people. But I heard a voice say, just listen to them and let them tell you their story. And the more I listened to them and the more they told me their story, what I realized is the person that I had made up about who they were wasn't at all real. Mm -hmm. And when I heard their story, I saw an entirely different person. And it wasn't because they had changed. It was because what they had changed me. They had allowed me to see something from a different perspective. And my heaven then became that moment. And it's a heaven you can have in business. It's a heaven you can have in relationships. It's the heaven you can have in anything. That moment where you realize the way you're seeing something is not, it's just that. It's the way you're seeing it. What would happen if you got out of your own way? Mm-hmm. What, would, what would be there if you could see things the way they are, not the way you are? Love it. That's, that's the way of seeing. Okay. So the book is called The Mosaic. Um, the book is now available everywhere. It's also on your website. Um, 
So the mosaic is also the name of your podcast. So now we can finally get into yeah. the meat and potatoes of this conversation. Before um, okay, before we get to the podcast, let me also say it's available in Spanish as at on Amazon through it's called El Mazaco. And it will be available in the next days. Like literally, if it's not today, it'll be tomorrow. If it's not tomorrow, it'll be the next day it, as an as an audiobook as well. Love it. Okay. I'm going to make sure I pick up a copy for sure. Thank you so much. All right. So The Mosaic, also the name of your podcast. Now, tell me about the name Mosaic uh, for your book, for your podcast. Like how is the name like The Mosaic Stick? I understand it's more like of like the the artwork of your life and literally the mosaic of your entire life. But how did you go with the name Mosaic? I, it, it's really funny. I didn't want that to be the name. I didn't have any idea what the name was. And I started I started writing the book and I thought I have to name the character. And the character that was the protagonist of my book, his name, for some reason it landed on me that, that Mo was his name. And I liked Mo. It was somehow just an easy name to say and, and a gentle name to say. And as I was looking for what I wanted to call it, the walk, I wanted to call it the path, I wanted to call it the journey. And then suddenly I was sitting and I said, hold it, this should be called the mosaic. And when I hit and then I realized the main character, the protagonist was called Mo. And I thought Mo was a part of the mosaic and how cool would that be? It just felt like it was right. And so... What I realized, though, in looking at it and the images of a mosaic, and this isn't what the book is about, but it's, I love the imagery of it. Mm-hmm. A mosaic is made up of, of broken pieces. They're, they can be broken. They can be whole. They can be big. They can be small. They can be different. They're all different colors. They're all different shapes. They're all different sizes. There's, some of them are beautiful. Some of them are not so beautiful. But when you bring all of those pieces together, they create an artistry that is so much more exquisite than any of the individual pieces on their own, even though the pieces on their own are beautiful. Most of them are beautiful. Some of them are not so. But what it, what it made me realize is in this time, especially in the world, in the history of our world, where we are so fragmented and separated, where so many people feel broken, we're not broken, but where we feel broken. We talk about what we used to be. We talk about the successes we used to have. Because right now we're a chip of that. We're a chip of that beautiful artistry that we once were. But we don't realize that that chip of that new art, that that chip is part of a new artistry that when we all come together and work together, we create things that are so much more beautiful than we could ever do on our own. And that image and that idea of not only coming together with other people, but bringing together all the parts of our lives. Like I've lived so many different lifetimes in this lifetimes. So many things have happened. I've been with the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. I've been, um, I've been in in the most exalted positions and in the in the most uh, uh, terrible positions. And the natural inclination is to make the terrible positions go away and the pain of those positions, not to never talk about them, but they're all part of my mosaic. And when I put all of those pieces of all of my life together, I create the artistry of this life that's Danny Levin. And that artistry is, is, is what's made me what I am today. And that artistry is something I'm so proud of and so happy to be able to offer to this world. But it's not because of what I'm able to do for another person. It's because of the space that I can hold for another person to be themselves. Mm -hmm. Because of all the pain and agony and suffering that I've gone through, for all the joy that I went through. 
I can actually hold the space for someone that is completely judge-free, judgment-free, that is completely loving and accepting for them. Because there's nothing they've done that I haven't done. There's nothing, there's no depth that they've gone to that I haven't gone to myself. And when I can hold that space and just love them and accept them and listen to them and hear them and acknowledge and validate them for who they are and what they do, something happens well that's magnificent. Suddenly everything they are not falls apart. It just falls off of them. Mm -hmm. And everything they are emerges and they start to see themselves differently than they've ever seen themselves before. And when you are that person, you become invincible. You're no longer scared to take risks. Right. And, you, and, and in this life, you have to take risks, especially especially now. So you starting this podcast, like right, because you're you're a businessman, you're a, a traveler. So was the idea of like. COVID-19 struck and you were forced to adapt. Was a podcast the way of adapting or is a podcast something you wanted to do for a while now? Like how did you start the Mosaic podcast? I never thought I was capable of doing a podcast. And I have a dear friend who, who kept coming up to me and saying, boy, you have so much to say and your life is so rich. You should have a podcast. See, that, right. that's, that, that in and of itself surprises me. You don't think you can do something. You of all yeah, people, yeah. after listening uh, to you for the past half uh, hour, uh, being in video from Invincible saying, I can't do this. Come on, Danny. Yeah, Come yeah, on, because, Danny. Look. There's certain things that I'm good at and certain things that are so simple for other people yep. that I just suck at, yep. you know, and I know what I, I know what I, I like people, people build me up to be this mythological creature. I'm just a, I'm just a bozo on the bus like everybody else. Yep. I just happen to be good at one thing. And, and what I highlight is the things that I'm good at, but I also highlight the things that I suck at. Because I want people to know that it's, it's okay to suck at something. I, I work with a woman and one of the biggest compliments she gave me was she said, somehow in working with you, I realized I don't have to be good at everything. I can suck at stuff and it's okay. Mm. And that doesn't prevent me from helping other people, even though I suck at some things. Because it's okay. I'm good at some other things. And it's like for me, what happened in the way the podcast even got created was a mosaic as well. Because I just didn't feel confident. I didn't feel like I could do it. I didn't know the technology. I didn't know the microphones. I, did, I would hear all the blah, 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 all the stuff that you had to do in order to get it. Yeah. I didn't know how to get, it, get a, a platform for it. I didn't know any of that. And my friend came over who charges people five and $10,000 to do it. And she said, I just want to, you've given me so much. I just want to create this for you. And I said, you're crazy. You're kidding me. Really? And she said, you just need to get three things. And I said, sure, I can get, I know, I know tons of people. And the Mosaic podcast for me was for people to become like a fly on the wall mm. and to be able to hear conversations they would never be privy to. Mm -hmm. Conversations with homeless people, conversations with corporate leaders, conversations with, with, with people that are at the head of the AI movement, conversations with people that are the most amazing artists, conversations with amazing musicians, conversations with people that are all different people, but that all had a moment in time where they changed their perspective and suddenly what was impossible for them to do became possible. So did you did you listen to podcasts prior? Like, is there an inspiration, no. or is it just like sick? Like eight months ago, someone said you start a podcast. You like, what's that? 
Yeah, I, I no, I knew what they were. I don't live in a cave, and you know, I, I sort of live in a cave. You'd be surprised. <laughs> so many people, like even in my own family, like they like they know I do podcasting, but I go home for like events. Are like, what is it? So you'd be yeah, you'd I, be surprised. I I I do live in a cave, and I don't know so much about so many things. <laughs> but I knew about podcasts because people had invited me to come on to mm. their podcasts. So somehow they found me and thought I would be a good guest for the podcast. And so I had appeared on podcasts and I saw the power of it. Every time I went on a podcast, I saw more books or people inquired about my service, you know, or people wanted to do, wanted to work with me. And so I saw the, the immediate power of what happens when we have a platform where we can speak to people and be with people and share our energy with people and people and people can respond to it and they can either like it or don't like it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't yep. like people. Some people will be drawn to me. Some people will hate me. That's okay. They have every right to be whoever they are. But, but I saw the power of that. And, and what I wanted to do in my podcast, one of the questions I ask people is both of these are so important, but which is more important to you right now? Is it more important for you to have a platform for you to share your message? Or is it more important for you to create a platform so that other people can come on your platform and, and share their message? And I don't think I get real answers from people because I think people think it's more altruistic to say they want to share their platform, share a platform. But I'm shocked at how many people say I want to create a platform for other people to share their platform. I would say it's a combination of both. Right? Yeah. Like it, it also, it, it depends on who you're talking to. Like you, you're my guest. So it is an opportunity for you to share your platform. Right. But at the, at, the, right. at the same time, you're also on my platform and, and you being on this platform would help also expand my platform. So like when, I, when I tell people there are different types of guests, there's guests that's going to help you and there's guests that's going to help them. Yeah. Right. And you got to know who you're talking to. Like if you have like a, like a, like a, like a Joe Rogan, right. The biggest thing in podcasting. Yeah. If he has an up and coming comedian, that's going to help the, the comedian but if joe rogan has on elon elon musk that's going to help joe so yeah. it's it's a balance it's a push and a pull so the answer yeah. to your question is it's it's a balance yeah but the people i was talking to didn't have podcasts they didn't have mm. they and and the, one of the reasons i started the mosaic podcast is because i felt like look when i was growing up there weren't very many ways to get your message out there. There were three television channels. TV was on from four to 10 o'clock at night and it was black and white TVs and, and the internet wasn't around. No one knew it. The, the internet hadn't been discovered yet. And so for people to get a platform, they had to go either on radio or on one of those TV stations. Mm -hmm. Otherwise they weren't heard. And there, and there were very few ways to get heard. And so everybody was battling for those few ways to get heard. Now we live in an environment where there are so many ways to get heard and so many voices that are being heard that it's almost hard to stand out in the marketplace and get heard because of all the noise that's in the marketplace. And so what I wanted to do is I just wanted to create some small pocket or large market, however it decides it wants to grow where people had an opportunity to hear people say what they've always wanted to say, but can never say, I wanted to give people a chance to have voice mm -hmm. because I feel like people's voices have been lost. It's one thing to listen to another person, 
But when you look at it, and I ask people, I, I, I talk to millions of people over the course of the year of the years. I've, I've been in, in millions of, of ears and people, people have been in my ear. And when I ask them, what are you here to do? There are so many people that say, what do you mean? What am I here to do? I don't know. How would I know that? I mean, I say, what do you mean you don't know what you're here to do? Yeah. Like, how is it possible you don't know what you're here to do? Like, if you don't know what you're here to do, everything you do will, will get you there. <laughs> but, but you're here to do something. You were created for a reason. Do you understand that? Do you understand that the creator of this universe doesn't have a need to recreate something that's already been created? You wouldn't need to be here. What you have is so special and so unique and so amazing. It might not be that big. It might be on a little level or on a big level. Who knows what level it's on? It doesn't matter. You're here to do what you were brought here to do. And when you do that, you fulfill your purpose in this world. Mm -hmm. Because no one from the beginning of creation to this moment has come to do what you're here to do. And because you'll do it and you will achieve it in this lifetime to do, no one from this moment forth will ever be asked to do that again. So don't you think that plays sort of an important role in the span of who you are as a human being mm -hmm. and what you have to contribute to this world? What, do you, what in the hell do you mean, I don't know? It's time for you to figure it out. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so you clearly have it figured out and you have now moved into the podcasting world. Um, do you see yourself continuing the podcast for an extended period amount of time like once the world opens up again you get to travel the world again and do what you do best are you still going to find ways to do the podcast or is it going to take a back seat or what's what's your plan moving forward no it's well now it's going you don't you don't take something that's going and stop it in the tracks because something else is going Amen to that. i'll take the i'll take the podcast on the road with me it'll be even more valuable it'll be even more poignant because I'll sit in places, I'll sit in, I'll sit in street corners and I'll do the podcast. I'll sit in, in churches or in prisons or in hate groups or in, or in synagogues or, or, you know, uh, prison cells or in hospitals or in boardrooms and I'll, and I'll set up podcasts there and I'll, 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 my goal is to bring people in, into, into the ability to see things they've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Because when we see only what we always see, we'll only see what we always have seen. And innovation comes when we sit with people of unlike mind, mm -hmm. where we sit with people that see the world differently than yeah. us. The world we live in today and how much conflict is going on because of the way people see the world and the inability to accept the way another person sees the world. But when we have the ability to look at the same exact thing and sit with somebody who sees it entirely differently than us, and we have the ability to sit with them in wonderment and curiosity and say, I am so excited to learn how you see the world. Because I believe, Will, I believe everything in the world is possible. Everything. The only reason we, it's impossible now is we don't see a way to make it possible. Mm -hmm. But when we suddenly see with people that see the world differently than we do, and they sit with us who sees the world differently than they do, we might just together see something we've never seen before. And that one thing, who knows, maybe it won't, but maybe it will. That one thing may be just the thing we needed to see in order to make what was impossible possible. Right.
And you, you strike that's where real innovation happens. And you strike me as a man who would talk to literally anybody. Um, anybody. But my, my family says I'll talk to a street post. <laughs> you know, I know I know a few people who do the exact same thing. But um for your podcast, do you have a certain like a bread and butter type of guest you'd like to have on? Because all of your podcasts have guests, correct? Yeah, I have I've done a couple independent, but I, I don't I, I'm my whole it's message tough. is around listening to other people. It's not about me talking. Yeah. And it's, it's also, it's tough to do solo shows. I've tried doing them and I struggle through them. I even struggle listening to them. There's a few I do listen to, but like the solo show is very difficult. I think a guest is more, it's more fluid. So like, I want to, I want to, I want to just uh, challenge that perspective. Okay. Go for it. And part of what I do in my life and my work and my, in my, in my just total being is I question people's answers. Because you know something, it isn't really tough to do a solo show. I can do a solo show so easily. I have so much content in me that I would like to share with people. I can do it. It's not that I don't want to do it. It's not that I don't like do it, doing it. And I have done a few. It's just right now when I listen to the voice that's inside of me, the voice inside of me says it's important to have dialogue to get people. And I started another podcast called 50 Conversations with 50 Strangers that I do because I, I wanted to show people. I wanted to, 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 to not show. It's not like I want to teach anybody anything. But I wanted to have a little window in the space of time where people could see that the stories that we were brought up with just aren't true. My mom told me growing up, you should never talk to a stranger, Danny. Be careful when you talk to a stranger. You have no idea what they have in their mind. And so I thought, what would happen if I just started talking to strangers? What I discovered, Will, is that people are only strangers for about three or four minutes. But as soon as you show up and, and give them love and, love and, and you love and accept them and you listen to them and hear them, and you acknowledge and validate them for what they're saying, they become, they'll die for you. And they may, they, I, they know that I don't believe what they believe. Mm -hmm. They don't want me to, they, no one's ever asked me to believe what they believe. They just, they just want to be heard. They just want to be understood. They just want to be loved for who they are. And when I realized I have the ability to do that, and that everybody here that's listening, I'm not special. You don't need to have a degree in psychology or be ordained as a rabbi. What you, all you need is a heart that cares enough about a person that you can just ask them a simple question, like, how are you? Mm -hmm. And have it not be a salutation where people say, fine, great, good. People always say, fine, great, good. And I say, okay, I get that. But we're living in a pandemic. We're living in a time where race relationships are at an all-time crisis. We're living at a time where women are standing up and saying, you can't treat me like that. We're living at a time where all of our organizations and all of our institutions are starting to crumble. We're living at a time where we don't even know that the news we're hearing is real and fake. Like, can you really tell me good, fine, great to that? How are you really doing? I care. Yeah. And yeah. suddenly this, they start to open up and they start to tell me what's real for them. And in that moment, everything shifts. Because when you show people that you care about them and love them, when you show people that anything they want is possible, when you show people that we were never meant to live life alone, we were meant to do it together. The reason I don't do independent talks on the Mosaic podcast is because it, 
it, it goes against the very fabric of what the Mosaic podcast is about. Right. The Mosaic podcast is we are better together than we are alone. I love it. So who is like your favorite type of guests? Like doctors, like philosophers, uh, deep thinkers, like homeless people, average Joe's students. Like who is, who is your bread and butter? Which is, I, what's, I, who like, I, like, I like the people that most people would never even talk to. Uh, so uh, extremists. Yeah. Well, they're not, they're not extremists. They're just people that get overlooked. Mm. And they get overlooked sometimes because of their brilliance. They get over. Uh, one of my favorite talks of all time was a was a Stanford trained um, scientist who proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that reality doesn't exist. And he's so well respected. He's he's sought after as a speaker. And when he spoke. Like when I listened to him, I could barely understand the thing he said when I prepared for to talk to him. And I started out by saying, hold it, Donald, you got to Like, I'm, I thought I bet I was told I have a genius IQ, but in listening to you, I feel like a, a bumbling idiot. Like you have to dumb down what you're saying so that I can understand, please. Because my audience, I want my audience to understand you. And he took the most complex realities and made them so simple for people to get that everybody could understand them. Another person that I had on was someone that I, I plan to do work with in the future, where he's using AI as a way to allow the human mind to think in a swarm rather than in a, in a vertical reality. In the world we live in now, we're told what to do. Self-help people teach us how to be better. Leaders lead us to be better people. Psychologists help us to be, to be not broken. He doesn't believe in any of that. Mm -hmm. He believes in what he looked at. What he, what he looked at is he looked at how do bees find a hive? They're not very intelligent animals. They don't have much capacity to think. But what they do is they send bees out in the thousands of different directions and they come back after they think they know where to build the hive and they come into the swarm of the hive and you can watch them. They literally start to vibrate towards the direction that they want to go and other bees will vibrate in a different direction. And there comes a time at a certain period of time where there is no opposition to the vibration and that's where they go and build the hive. And he wondered if the human mind could be taught or trained to act that way. And so he, he created a virtual room, and in that room, he created a hexagon. And in the corners of each of the hexagons, he would put a solution. And so CBS News challenged him and said, if you're so great, because he's a well-known, he's, he's Stanford, and the teams he's, well, he works with are really well-educated well people, and they've, they've done a lot in virtual reality, and this is his newest creation. And he said, he said to people, um, I want you to come into this room. CBS challenged them to pick the winners of the Kentucky Derby, but not just the winner, the first, second, third, and fourth place horse. They said, that's a trifecta. And just so you know, the chances of getting that are 590 to one. And he said, good, I don't know if we'll be able to do it. But he took 40 people that were horse enthusiasts, not gamblers, not, not handicappers, not horse owners, none of that. Just people that said they occasionally like to watch horse races. Hmm. And he had them come into this virtual room and he made their mouse a magnet because in that room was a hexagon. And on the hexagon was all the people, all the horses that were running in the Kentucky Derby. And in the middle was a puck. 
And when he, he said, I'm going to tell you to go in a, in, a, in a couple of minutes, I'm going to tell you to go. And I want you to move the puck to the horse that you think is going to win the Kentucky Derby. And when they opened it up, all 40 of them did it. And you can see the puck moving just like you can see the bees moving. They would move from one side to another. They would move to another. And finally, they moved to a place where there was no resistance. Then he did it again for second place. Then he did it again for third place. Then he did it again for fourth place. A $20 bet on the, on the choices that that swarm made produced an $11,000 reward. No way. Yes way. No way. Okay. They had these 40 random people yeah, yeah. had picked better than any of the experts, had picked better than any of the of, of the people that handicapped, had picked better than any of the other uh, other people that were well known in the profession for picking the winners. And so what he ended up doing is he created a gambling site where he now he now says who's going to win the academy awards who's going to win the football games who's going to who's going to win the world series he even predicted which states of the 50 states of america were going to be the decisive states in the election of trump and how in the election of the president and how they were going to and how they were going to go and he was a, they were 100% right so i went to him and i said oh this is amazing and it's great as a gambling site. And the reason he used it as a gambling site is because he wanted it to be certifiable. He didn't want to say, are you happier now than you were? Because it wasn't certifiable. Mm-hmm. He, wanted, he wanted provable conclusions. He wanted something that at the end of the thing, he could say, we were right or we were wrong. So I went to him and I said, that's fabulous. I'm, I want to get involved with you and I want to create something called the Mosaic Swarm. And what I want to do is I want to ask people, what are the top issues they want to fix in the world? And part of my trip around the world was to get data from people of what they would want to fix out of, out of eight or 10 things. Do they want to fix global warming? Do they want to fix women's issues? Do they want to fix crime? Do they want to fix homelessness? Do they want to fix poverty, you know, poverty or the fact that people don't have food? Do they want to fi- fix clean drinking water? What do they want to fix? What do they want to work on? And I was going to ask people for $1 a month to join the Mosaic Swarm. $1 a month isn't very much. It's like 10 minutes a day. It's not very much. And there are people in the world that can't afford $1 a month. So we were going to ask people who could afford it to, to, to donate for them and, and to sponsor them in. And I was looking for a minority of 1 billion people because the world has close to 8 billion people in it. Mm-hmm. 7 billion of which would think we're crazy. Mm-hmm. But I was looking for a minority of 1 billion. And what I wanted to do is take those 1 billion people into these swarm rooms and have them look at what issues would they want to solve and then how they would solve them. And then we would have $1 billion a month to invest in the solutions the people decided they wanted to solve and they wanted and how they wanted to solve so that we would bring life to the words we the people in a way that i've never seen it brought to in my where we wouldn't have to go to anybody else we would handle it on ourselves, and it might take us eight ten months to come up with solutions we might throw away eight or ten billion dollars but all you would have thrown away is eight or ten dollars all i would have thrown away is eight or ten dollars yeah and for eight or ten dollars, I'd be willing to make that investment. Wow! So I don't even know how to follow up to that one. Um, 
Well, you asked me what business I'm involved in. I could care less about selling gadgets. Yeah. But I'm, I'm in the business of, 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 of bringing change into this world. Not because the world's broken, just because the systems that we're operating in, uh, um, they're just not working anymore. And, and Buckminster Fuller said, to think that we can change the world by the thinking of the world we're in is never going to work. Yeah, you got to imagine what, the world you want and then make that reality. What we need to create is a new modality of, of existence. Mm-hmm. And in that modality, the thinking from that modality will create a new way of doing the world that is irresistible and everybody will want to do it. That's the business that I'm in right now. All right, Danny, I love it. So you have led quite an amazing life. You have quite an amazing podcast, but I have one final question for you before we wrap up and go home. If you could go back through your whole life, all of your experiences, is there anything you would go back and do differently? Yeah, I've made some foolish mistakes in my life. I mean, haven't we all? Yeah. And so uh, there are... But I'm going to say it to you in a different way because, look, I've made idiotic choices sometimes. I've made choices that have hurt myself and hurt others, and I'm certainly sorry for those. But the choices that have been the most weird choices is something that might be very different here in Zoom, and I'm going to say. Story, I'm a storyteller. And what I've realized is the power of story. And I have made up some stories in my life that have been so powerful. And I've said them so many times that I actually believe those stories were realities. Mm. But those stories are not realities. They were just stories. If I can give you an example, do we have time for that? Absolutely. Go for it. My dad passed away when I was 13 years old. My dad was my hero. I was, he was like my, I was like a mini me of him before these were even created. We would walk down, you're from Jersey, so you know Atlantic City. And, and in the years when Atlantic City was well known 50, 60 years ago, we used to go to the, to the boardwalk every summer. And we would walk down the boardwalk and I would hold his ring finger and I was like a two and a half foot version of a six one version of him. And the way we waddled and the way our bodies looked and the way we gestured was completely the same. So much so that people would stop their bikes or they would stop their carts so that they could take a picture of us. And I, I, I looked at my dad. I was just like a kid, four years old. And I said, Dad, why are, why are they laughing? Why are they smiling at us? He said, Danny, because you're exactly like me. And you're just a smaller version and people don't ever see that. And so when I was 13 years old, my dad was gone, was a salesman and he was going away one morning. He was going away the next morning on a trip to sell, to, to sell what he was selling. And I was leaving in a few days to go to camp. So he came into my room and he said, Danny, I'm leaving very early in the morning, tomorrow morning. I know you're going to, next day, I'm, I'm going to say goodbye to you now. 
and I'm going to say, I love you. And I'm going to say, you know, have a great trip and I'll have fun in camp and I'll see you on parents visitors day and know how much I love you. And just, I'm going to give you a big hug right now. and just carry this with you until I see you in camp. And I said, dad, there's no way I'm what, how early are you leaving? He said, I'm leaving at four 30 in the morning. I said, there's no way I'm going to let you walk out the door on your own. I'm going to, I'll be down there at 4.30. I'm going to run. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to jump in your arms. I'm going to give you a big kiss, and you're going to go out with my big hug because the last thing that happens for you before you go. He said, Danny, don't. Please just sleep. I don't know if he turned off my alarm or if I didn't hear my alarm or I never set my alarm, but 4.30 came and went, and I never woke up. My dad left that morning, and I never saw him. Before Visitor's Day, he died of a heart attack, making love to my mom. Four weeks later, I made up a story, Will, that had I woke up that morning, my dad would not have died of a heart attack four weeks later. Was there any truth to that story? Absolutely not. If you would ask 10,000 people on the street, is there any connection between this and that? They would say no connection at all. But for me, I made up a story that rather than live in a random world where my most precious being in my life was taken from me randomly with no, for no reason, I made up the story that I was responsible. And so I lived in a cause and effect world. If I had woken up, that wouldn't have happened and I can live in a cause and effect world. The only problem is I punished myself for that action that I didn't even do, that wasn't even relevant, that had no ramifications on what actually happened for years and years and years by, by playing out that same story in so many situations that it was my fault that this happened when I had nothing to do with it. And I wonder how many stories your listeners have heard, how many stories they've made up, how many stories they tell themselves over and over and over again that have zero reality to them but we've made them reality by how many times we say it. So if I had something that I would give up looking back on my life now, I would give up the power of the stories that I've created that have made my reality different than they are when there was no story there to be told. Mm -hmm. So what would, what would you, Danny Levin, right now, have told that Danny back then who made that mistake? What would you tell him? I would say I completely understand. I've done the same thing myself numerous, numerous times. And what does that story give you now? And how and are you ready to let go of it in this moment? Because if you're not ready to let go of it, it'll still stay with you. But the beauty of a story, and I've, I've done this, I'm a writer. When you tell a story, and the story isn't exactly the way you want it to be. You can go back and delete some things. You can edit some things out. You can change the wording. I'll tell you another story if I can. And when I wrote that book for when I wrote that book for that hotel, one of the one of the characters that I created was the guy every guy wants to be like. He was the best you know, sports guy. He was the strongest leader. <laughs> he was the most fearless fighter. He was the best hunter and fisherman. And so I wrote about, and every woman on the island wanted to be with him. So I closed up the story of that, of that person by saying, 
by saying, and every, every person, every, he went to bed, he went home with another woman every night because every woman wanted to be with him. And the hotel looked at me and they said, we can't do that. <coughs> that isn't something we can say. Excuse me, I'm sorry. That isn't something we can say. So I went back in and I edited that story. And I changed it to this. I said, even though every night he could have gone home with any woman on the island, he couldn't wait to go home to the one woman that he longed to be with. And when he saw her every night, he felt renewed and energized. And they went, ah, that's the story we want to tell. Well, we can do that to the stories we've told in our life. We can edit them out. We can fix them. We can change them because they're no longer the story we want to tell. Mm -hmm. So I would say rewrite that story. Edit it out. Take out the part that doesn't make sense anymore. And rewrite it. All right, Danny. I'm sure myself, yourself, everyone out there is going to continue to write and rewrite their own stories. Danny, I want to thank you so much for being on the Ambiguous Podcast Solution, guys. The Mosaic Podcast, you can find it anywhere everywhere podcasts can be found. The Mosaic Novel can be found um, on audiobook coming soon. By now, by the time this is released, it's probably already out there. So, Danny, yes. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your stories. Um, this conversation went exactly and exactly how I expected it and not expected to go at the exact same time so i want to thank you for your time i want to thank you for your stories and i just want to thank you just just for being someone in this world because i'm glad there's someone out there like you and i'm going to take a lot away from this conversation and use what you said even in my life and my business going forward so thank you for your thank you thank you what a kind what a kind thing for you to say i so appreciate you and i'm available to to listen to people if they want and if i can help anybody to realign their perspective or rewrite their story, it would be my honor to do so. so. How can people reach you? They can reach me on my website, themosaiconline.com. You just contact information or on danielbrucelevin.com is my other website. Or they and there, my email is on there. I'll I'll send you all that so you have it for the show notes. Wonderful. Uh, and I encourage people to contact me if they feel drawn to. All right. Terrific. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Ambiguous Podcast Solution with Daniel Danny Levin, the host of the Mosaic Podcast. You can find out all of our other podcasts at ambiguouspodcastsolutions.com. All of our other podcasts, part of this network, are there, as well as um, all of our affiliates. Go support them, support our shows. Um, follow us all across all social media. We'll be back again in a few days with a brand new guest, maybe a brand new host. We'll see. But until then, I'm Will Tarashuk. Thank you all so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.